Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. This is a political year like few others. The traditional laws of gravity have so far not seemed to apply. Part of it is due to the collection of candidates, the public mood, and the long-simmering divisions within the Republican Party. It's also the result of the changing demographics of America, congressional gerrymandering, and the ways in which the idea that all politics is local helps one party, not the other. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Thomas Schaller. He's a professor of political science at the University of Maryland. He writes a political column for the Baltimore Sun, and he's the author of a new book entitled The Stronghold, How Republicans Captured Congress But Surrendered the White House. Thomas Schaller, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here, Jeff. I wish I were joining you out in Napa Valley instead of here in snowy D.C. Well, it's good to have you here, at least uh, telephonically. Is part of the problem, as we look at this, the fact that, that one party really is a local party and one is a national party? And, and, and that division seems to be stronger and stronger as time goes on. Yeah, I'm uh, actually starting to think about a third book uh, as a follow-up to my uh, previous two, the Whistling Past Dixie book, making sort of a partisan regional argument about the Democrats' ability to build majorities outside the South. And then the new book is uh, is a book about the Republicans being a Congress-defined party and the problems it's posed to them as a presidential competitive party. But, you know, the more I look at it and given the gains that the Republicans have made on the state level, I, I think that is what we're seeing. I mean, the Republicans control 68 of the 99 legislators, legislatures in the country. They have 31 of the governors, and of course they have majorities in both the House and the Senate, but they can't seem to win the presidency. And it makes you wonder if whether, you know, local voters want, you know, Republicans to govern locally, but they're maybe hesitant to have Republicans, you know, setting war policy or appointing federal judges and prefer Democrats uh, in the White House. Now, all that could change very quickly here if the Republicans win this presidential election. And if history is any guide, they should win it. It's hard to win three in a row. It's only happened once in the last 60 years with Reagan, Reagan and Bush. So uh, it's maybe too early to say, but um, you know, it's quite possible um, that we will see this sort of divergence between a more localized uh, Republican Party and a more nationalized Democratic Party. And if, in fact, that's true, if, in fact, that continues to move towards the reality, what, if anything, can Republicans do to nationalize the party? Well, it's going to be problematic, and part of it just has to do with geography. You talked about gerrymandering. Part of gerrymandering, the advantage for Republicans is when they strategically have power in the states and they draw the districts in their favor. But part of it has nothing to do with Republicans and Democrats and their strategic ability or inability or failure to draw districts favorably. It just has to do with the fact that Democratic voters are increasingly clustered in urban and inter-suburban areas. I mean, you look at the electoral map, Obama carried 22% of all counties, and in some states he carries zero zero counties in a handful of states he just carried a few counties even though in some of those states he managed to win them because they're very very big counties we live in a country where the two largest counties los angeles county obviously la and cook county chicago have as much population as the 1400 smallest counties combined and so you know obama carried 34 of the 50th biggest uh 34 of the four excuse me 44 of the 50th 50 largest counties just 12 years prior to that, Gore only carried 34 of the 50th largest counties. So the Democrats are increasingly concentrated, not just in, in, in a fewer number of states, but a fewer number of counties within those states. And so uh, that leaves Republicans to really govern in, in everywhere else. You know, they have significant majorities in a lot of medium and small sized cities and counties. And so I don't know how they build a national message out of that. And they've really struggled to do it because they're paying attention to the constituencies that nominate and elect them. And those are county offices, state 
state legislative offices in these House districts that are drawn uh, for Congress uh, for the Republicans, where 90 percent of those districts are majority white for House Republicans. And, of course, one of the things that we're continuing to see, and there's no reason to think that this trend is going to dissipate in any way, is that more and more people are moving to those high population counties. More and more people are moving towards urban areas. That's right. I mean, segregation used to be discussed as a legal phenomenon. There are still some vestiges of segregation in terms of what we traditionally think of when that word pops into our brains. But segregation today is is, is self-segregation. It's self-selected moving toward communities of like-minded people. Now, you know, some of those communities were already pre-existing self-segregated, particularly minority communities. But you think about Washington, D.C., you think about the urban centers that have become magnets for, you know, millennials and, you know, which are a multiracial band of, young people in tech and other sectors, education, healthcare, and so forth. You know, these ideopolises, as, um, you know, John Judas and Roy, Rui Tejera described them more than a decade in their book, The Emerging Democratic Majority. I mean, these population centers, Tampa, you know, and Orlando Corridor and Denver Boulder and, you know, obviously San Jose, San Francisco, those are a, one kind of America, and loosely we sometimes refer to them as blue America, and then there's there's everything else, really, and, and that's an increase increasingly red America. And, uh, and oftentimes those two Americas really have a hard time conversing with each other and have a hard time understanding each other and certainly a hard time voting with each other. And, and as we see this trend continue and, and as we see more and more power in the case of urban areas, talk a little bit about how that relates to the hollowing out and the economic condition of rural America because that plays into the politics as well. Yeah, I think uh, among the strongest criticisms that could be made of Democrats and liberals, of which I consider myself certainly a liberal and I guess a Democrat by extension, is is a, is a sometimes willful or maybe just a sometimes lazy avoidance of, of, of white rural poverty. And I think that's in part driven by the fact that white rural voters don't like Democrats and they vote most parts of the country overwhelmingly against Democrats, especially if they're not a union household, which is the used to be at least the one exception to that. And so when you see these large swaths of Appalachia that actually went stronger, stronger for John McCain than George W. Bush with the presumption that, well, it was because McCain was running against a black candidate and Bush was only running against John Kerry. It's hard not to think that, you know, race and racism undergird some of this and this sort of Tom Frank argument about, you right. know, downscale white people voting against their interests or voting for wealthy Wall Street bankers and Citizens United campaign, you know, finance uh, rulings from the Supreme Court that don't really help them. And so Democrats, I think, naturally have been disinclined to try to be invested in that. But the fact of the matter is a true liberal or progressive pop project would have to include, you know, downscale white voters, even if they're not voting for Democrats. And I think part of this Trump phenomenon to segue into this 2016, you know, presidential race and the Republican primary is that Trump is figuring out a way to talk to those those white voters in a way that Democrats have somewhat failed to do. I mean, in many ways, part of what what the Republican Party seems to be suffering from, and E.J. EJ Dion talks about this in his new book, is this is the kind of the payback for the what's the matter with Kansas strategy, that, that all of these white rural voters have gone along with voting for Wall Street and voting for Republicans and have gotten nothing in return. I you know, and I think he's absolutely right. And I'm looking at his book. It just came in the mail a couple of <laughs> days ago. And, uh, you know, I, I think EJ is right, and this was, you know, the Tom Frank argument that uh, they're going to, you know, vote for, vote against abortion and get a tax cut for Madonna. I think you know, it was the famous line or something mm-hmm. to that effect in Tom Frank's original uh, conceit. And EJ's right is that 
Um, and it's not just Tom Frank or EJ. I mean, if you remember, there are conservatives, including now, he wasn't then, but now New York Times columnist Ross Duthat mm-hmm. and his co-author Rehan Salam, who wrote a great book about how the Republicans 10 years ago needed to figure out how to fashion an agenda that appealed, okay, sure, to Wall Street and okay to people who want corporate tax cuts and high-end end income tax cuts and government deregulation of industry, but also needed to find a message for working-class voters of whatever race, but especially white voters who, you know, on a day-to-day basis aren't going to be affected by a capital gains tax. Most of their money, if they have it in the market, is in long-term mutual bonds, you know, mutual funds. They're not buying and selling stocks on a daily or monthly yearly basis. And so there are conservatives who've been worried, uh, warning about this phenomenon for more than a decade. And I guess in the way that Democrats have ignored that constituency, Republicans have ignored, ignored them too, which is ironic because they, in theory, have a, a strong vested advantage in, in trying to appeal to those voters because they are inclined more to vote Republican based on cultural and social issues like God, guns, and gays, the old, you know, bomb mm-hmm. formula there. So, um, you know, it's, it's understandable if Democrats say, well, geez, we can't appeal to these people because they're never going to vote for us because we're pro-choice or because we, we uh, want the gun regulations. Uh, Republicans really have no excuse there, and the fact that they haven't figured out a way to talk to those voters speaks to the capture of their party by really wealthy interest individuals and trade associations and, and Wall Street. It's interesting that the only sort of mainstream establishment Republican that at least shows some sense of having figured this out is Paul Ryan. Right. And actually, you could say Paul Ryan. You, I, I would add Rand Paul in there a little mm-hmm. bit, and, and I guess Donald Trump. I mean, I think there are some Republicans who are trying to have that conversation, and I feel that they – I'm not speaking for them. I'm just repeating what they right, say. Right. They feel drowned out about that. They feel that you know, the, 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 he who pays the piper calls the tune, and the tune callers in the Republican Party are big you know, trade associations, corporate interests. They are going to get to eat at the bowl first. And because they write the checks for, you know, uh, for all the lobbying, they write all the big political a- a- action committee checks and they write the individual donor checks, the hard money checks to, to the candidates. And so, you know, they are at the top of the pecking order or at the top of the prioritization list. And so I, 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 I'm empathetic or sympathetic to those voices uh, that you point out who say, look, this is ridiculous. We need to not just, you know, we can listen to those interests and they have important interests and maybe we should deregulate things or maybe we should cut this tax, but we also should think about, you know, long-term investments in, you know, infrastructure and, and, and social welfare programs. You see Donald Trump saying, we're not going to cut Medicare and Social Security. So, um, so maybe something is going to finally flip here and you're going to see this populist underbelly uh, within the Republican Party and it would have forced the Democrats to, to do something about it to counter, by the way. Uh, you're going to see that populist underbelly start to sort of uh, brew up through the party's politics. It is interesting to see what constitutes some kind of a, a, a populist revolution being led by a New York billionaire real estate developer. It's fascinating, right, Jeff? I, I mean, to me, when people ask me, I've been asked this in many little lectures and speeches, like, how come, you know, sort of working class white people who are maybe socially conservative, fine, can't join up with working class white, you know, brown, black, you know, sort of more liberal people and forge a consensus coalition on some of these issues, whether it's the minimum wage, which we keep seeing passing in states when it's just put directly on the ballot and not filtered through legislators, or, you know, cutting taxes uh, uh, for middle-class people, but raising them on the rich, which, you know, 75% of Americans say we should raise taxes on the rich. I mean, that's, you rarely get 75% of Americans agree on anything, right? And I always point to the moment 
during the financial crisis, when if you remember, Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats were still in power, and they put forth the first attempt at the bailout, and that failed, and the market fell 700 points that day, if you remember back in late September, the first week of October, I forget when it was. This was right in the middle of the presidential campaign, and you had Republicans and Democrats in the House voting against their, in the case of the Democrats, their own leader, and saying, you know, we're not going to bail out Wall Street. And that was the moment where you thought, oh my God, like, this is happening, right? Like, the elites, the financial and political elites are getting a stark message coming from elements in both sides of the party. And of course, three days later, they came up with a different plan, and they forced it through, and both President Bush and the next President Obama both backed that plan. And so I think that moment was there for about 72 hours, and it disappeared. But it does tell us that there is an opportunity there, and it takes a certain kind of politician. And whether that politician is Donald Trump or somebody else, I don't know. But uh, certainly on the right, Trump has done it better or more uniquely than anybody else. Is this going to lead to, and, and although you hear this a lot, and this phrase has been used, I think, since you know the early early 1960s, but but this time it may be true, some kind of political realignment of the parties, particularly the Republican Party. I, 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 my, my gut tells me no, just because the two parties are so polarized. I mean, on every measure of partisan polarization, whether we look at elite votes in Congress, House and Senate, whether we look at uh, the increasingly unified state legislatures, we have very few divided state governments where the one of the chambers is different from the governor. I mean, we have far more unified state governments than we've had in 40 or 50 years, mostly Republican, but many Democratic as well. Um, and if certainly if you look at polarization among masses and, you know, self-identified Democrats who trust Republicans and vice versa, all-time lows and the polarization scores in their ratings of President Obama versus President Bush at our all-time highs. I, you know, I don't know who can bridge that gap. Certainly the last two presidents, Bush, the United Not a Divider, Obama, there's no Red America, no Blue America. Pre- presidents are talking about this presidential candidates are offering themselves as this bomb or solution but none of them can do it obama wasn't able to bridge the partisan divide certainly bush wasn't so i don't see a realignment coming unless there is a substantive generational change and you know i used to say i used to ask my students about this as i teach realignment class and i would say what would it take it would take like a major episode or event in the United States. Well, we had a financial crisis in 2007, 2008, and we had an attack on the homeland in 2001, and neither of those things, neither of those very dramatic events, epic-scale events, was able to build a divide, you know, in the sort of an old Tip O'Neill, Ronald Reagan, big, giant, you know, middle America way. And so if that can't do it, I, I can't imagine what would. And, of course, part of why it won't happen, arguably, gets to the heart of what you talk about in the stronghold, is that you have too many members of Congress at this point whose reelection is dependent on keeping that divide exactly the way it is. Right. We have structural polarization in a world where politicians pick their voters through gerrymandering rather than voters picking their politicians. And I, for one, would love to see independent or bipartisan or computer-generated maps. That would really force politicians to start to listen to people who aren't like the people that normally nominate and re-elect them. I mean, in the Republican Congress right now, 90% of the Republicans in the U.S. House of Representatives represent majority white districts, and 75% of them represent districts that are 75% white or more. So they're talking to a largely white constituency in the primary that renominates them in a safe district, and so it's no surprise that they can't have a real conversation with many non-white voters, because they never have to talk to them. And you can say, well, that's not really their fault. That's the district that they're in, and to a certain degree, that's true, but it's 
them and their fellow politicians who've, who've drawn those districts in strategically and, frankly, selfishly, but strategically smart ways to, to ensure their elections and re-elections and their majorities. I mean, you can't blame Republicans for doing it or Democrats for doing gerrymandering. It's, it makes sense to do it strategically in the short term. But as I argue in the book, you've had an entire generation of Republicans who have grown up in these lily white districts, and now you know they don't know how to really talk to voters other than their base voters, and that's a problem. It's a similar problem on the Democratic side. It's, I think it's, the Democratic districts, by definition, are a little bit more diverse. But you know, this is what we're having. We're basically decamping into our two political bases and then wondering why our, our elites can't get along and, and uh, vote together to solve real-world problems when you know this is the partisan polarization that's been baked into the system. And, of course, the overlay to all of this, kind of the rocket fuel to all that we've been talking about, is the role of money in the political process. Well, of course, Jeff. I mean, just by the way, as an aside, this is, <laughs> this is one of the smartest interviewers I've, I've, I've ever had uh, interview me. I mean, those questions make perfect logical sense. I, the money is really a pervasive problem, Jeff. And uh, we really, when we talk about elite failure, and we tend to reflexively think of political elite failure, and there's clear evidence of that in shutdowns and, you know, debt ceiling crises and all this other business. But, you know, elite failure exists, and I think the citizenry, the public, not as voters, but just as citizens, also sees elite failure in our financial institutions, even our religious institutions, right? We've had church scandals that are, you know, in movies like Spotlight. People really have started to not trust their leadership. Trust in institutions, if you look at Pew and Gallup polls, is at all-time lows across institutions. It's only like police and firefighters and a few other agencies and individuals or classes of individuals that have above 50% approval or trust. So we have massive elite failure in the public, in the private sector, financial sector, even in our social institutions. And so why is that happening everywhere? And I think the pervasive power of money you see money in the church scandals. You see money, obviously, driving these crazy uh, financial instruments that were created just to bilk middle-class people. And obviously, you see money in terms of campaign finance and the control in the post-citizens united environment of our two political parties. You know, Democratic Party gets a lot of Wall Street money, but they're bested only by the Republican Party, right? We have one party, as I always say, that's a partially owned subsidiary of Wall Street and one that's a wholly owned subsidiary of Wall Street, right? I mean, you can understand the cynicism of voter citizens about our institutions because wherever they turn, it looks like the big guys, the power guys, the money guys are going to win out every time because the system's rigged. It's interesting that if we look at, at the landscape of the country right now, there is almost no area at all that has not been impacted by technology and by creative destruction in changing those institutions. Government is the exception. And, and one has to wonder if the system that we have, the government that we have, the way the system works is somehow completely and absolutely inadequate to the realities of the 21st century. Well, I think, you know, for all the down uh, playing or poor mouthing of our government bureaucrats. We have smart people in government and yeah, we've had some, you know, OPM, you know, snafus and stuff, but our government is using pretty good cutting edge technology. I think the problem is that we tend to blame, you know, rank and file bureaucrats and being lazy and inefficient and stupid when I think everything really stems from elite leadership, from the elected leadership. Um, you know, one of the things I talk about in the stronghold, the book, is that, you know, the Republican Party has an asymmetrical advantage in government failure because that is a 
one of the products that they sell. They're saying government doesn't work, and so they have a vested interest, frankly, in making it not work or at least be stalemated um, because it reinforces that message. And so we, I think we've passed a time where even though there might have been differences on the means and maybe even differences on the ends, but there was at least a general consensus that government did smart good collective things for the public, like fight major national war, world wars and build the Eisenhower interstate system and build our infrastructure. Now there's not even a consensus that the government can do that, even though I personally think it can, but it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. When you say it's impossible for it to do it, then the political will dissolves to do it, and then you don't put the resources or plan ahead or work cooperatively to do it, and then it, you say, aha, aha, voila, it didn't work. And it didn't work because you never really tried. I mean, our government has put a man on the moon and fought two world wars and has the CDC. I mean, we forget just really how technically efficient and effective our government can be when there's the political will and a consensus that says, hey, we're gonna, here's a problem, we're going to fix this problem. I mean, our government's got a pretty damn good track record over 200 years, and people forget that sometimes. But is there something structurally wrong, right? I mean, this was the point that, that Larry Lessig was making during his brief presidential run, where he talked about the need for, you know, a, basically a constitutional convention, an Article 5 convention, to, read, to address some of these issues, some of these structural issues. Yeah, you know, I wrote my dissertation on Article 5, the amendment process, and I, I do think the government's structural foundation in the Constitution, despite all the glorification and fetishization of the Constitution, the Constitution was written 225 years ago. It is antiquated in many respects. It has things in there that aren't relevant today, like quartering soldiers. We have enough military bases to put our soldiers in housing, right? And, and, it, ha and it doesn't account for a lot of things that we certainly would like it to discuss or, or, or at least weigh in on today. Uh, the great blessing of the Constitution is it's vague enough that we, it's been able to adapt, mostly through court rulings. But I do think there are some problems with the Constitution, starting with the Senate. I mean, I'm, I'm an advocate for eliminating the Senate. There's really, really perverse representational differences. Maybe we could modulate it so that there are groups of states and it was not two per state. Maybe California and New York get six and the smaller states get two and the medium-sized states get four. But, I mean, there are perverse uh, population inadequacies and, and, and disproportionate power for a state like Wyoming should not exercise as much power as the state of California in the Senate. It gives it incredible blocking power. And I think our ability to solve problems in a government that's structured to block and slow and thwart and dilute, and I talk about this a lot in the stronghold, is always going to favor a slow progress. And if you conservative, you might think that's a beautiful thing, and I, uh, many conservatives do, but if you think, oh, we've got bridges and roads that are falling apart here, and we don't have the political will to do it because you can always find enough people to put a hold in and 40 votes to, to, for cloture, to block cloture, well, you're never going to get big things done if you don't have partisan consensus, and we know we don't have partisan consensus, as we already discussed. So our default position now is to do less, to do nothing, to do it poorly, to do it sort of in a half-baked way, and I don't see how we get out of that. And part of the problem also is that there's always this kind of embrace of, of these problems by saying, you know, these are the same issues, the same debate about federalism, the same issues that the founders were debating, and that it's a good thing that we're having this debate today. But the world didn't move as fast. It, you didn't need to be as nimble in 1776 as you do today. 
Right. I mean, Obama had that crack against o- uh, Romney when he was saying our military's got less of this and less of that. And he said, you know, we have fewer horses and bayonets in the army than we did 100 years ago. Do we re- is that really a problem? And I think this sort of mindset that, uh, you know, especially people who want to live in this colonial period and they feel like the government should just do constitutional original thing and everything else should be to the states. I mean, that's just absurd. I mean, it's absurd to try to live in a, you know, a card horse and pencil era when we have, you know, tablet computers and, you know, uh, electric vehicles, right? It's it's crazy. But look, I, I think in defense of conservatives, what they say is that there's too much government wherever it is. The public sector is larger than it was. And there's no question about that. I mean, our government at one point operated 70% of its revenue on receipts from, from beer, wine, and liquor. I mean, it's incredible to think of 130, 140 years ago. We don't do that today, right? But if they want to argue for more sense locally, controlled government, state and local, that's fine. I mean, I think that's an important philosophical debate to have between liberals and who like a more centralized government and conservatives who want to decentralize and devolve back to states and communities. But as we see in Flint, that doesn't necessarily mean that the states are going to solve those problems very well. So I, I, I'd be happy to jump on board with conservatives who say, let's move power down to states and local governments as long as they do it well, you know, as long as they do it well for things that obviously like national defense that the national government has to do. But, you know, we've gotten to this point where there's no faith in government. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. I said and so we're, we have government failure on, on the state in the state legislatures as well as in Washington. Thomas Schaller, his book is The Stronghold How Republicans Captured Congress but Surrendered the White House. Thomas, I thank you so much for spending time with us. What a great interview. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thank you.